0: everything we've learned about supply chain management in the last 20 years do we need to throw it all out the window hi everybody i'm bob bowman editor-in-chief of supply chain brain and this is a supply chain brain podcast Companies looking to cut supply chain costs while improving their ability to pivot in line with changing customer demand have long preached the gospel of lean and just-in-time manufacturing, avoiding unnecessary buildups of inventory while rushing parts and materials to the production line at the very moment they're needed. Now, in a time when supply chains are being interrupted, if not dismantled, by the coronavirus, you might ask whether that strategy is still tenable. Isn't it a good idea to be compiling stocks to be able to respond to the unpredictable moment? And aren't those long supply lines, caused by the rush to offshore production to cheap locations like China, turning out to be way more costly and troublesome than anyone could have foreseen? Today, I'm discussing how supply chains should be reacting to changing times with Roy Anderson, Chief Procurement Officer with TradeShift. What's the right move when the path ahead is dark and full of bends, and how should you be treating your suppliers in these difficult times? Here is my conversation with Roy Anderson. Roy Anderson, welcome to the show. Thanks,
1: Bob. Glad to be here.
0: Roy, one of the big moves in supply chains and manufacturing the last few decades has been just-in-time and lean. There's big emphasis on cost-cutting in supply chains. Are we now seeing a shift away from those philosophies?
1: Well, I believe there's an awful lot of conversation around that, but it's taken decades to build out that just-in-time and lean supply chain concept and whole industries of consulting services that have gone into building up that type of solution set. Mm -hmm. I believe the key is there is absolutely a need to be able to relook at this, but I would suggest to you that if cost savings is still gonna be the driver for all these CPOs, then lean and just in time are still gonna be in the mix. But I believe what needs to be added is resilience, that we need to move Mm -hmm. to the point of maybe having multiple just-in-time in lean supply chains, which is going to allow you to have some more resilience in the process, but still drive as much of the cost reduction and cost savings as possible.
0: Do you think that recent experience has exposed the flaws in lean manufacturing to any great degree? And if so, how and what?
1: Yeah. So uh, lots of flaws, right? In a lean, you're now very limited. You're trying to get uh, rigidity, In the process because rigidity is fast. Fast means less travel time, less inventory requirement. Just in time means you're ordering it and getting it delivered just as it's needed so there is nothing hanging around. There's no additional cost associated with that. So those efforts have taken a significant amount of time to build up. Now, with the whole COVID and literally whole groups of countries and manufacturing operations just shutting down and walking away has shown that, well, with no inventory and no ability to replace that material, you have to stop your own production lines, which Mm -hmm. has been painful. I believe, though, those companies that have had the understanding that risk is real and that they've been planning and building up risk scenarios for the last five to 10 years, that those companies have been able to take advantage of this situation because they've had the ability to move their production, move their suppliers and be able to get the product they need to be able to deliver. I think this is a real opportunity to show that having that resilience is actually a competitive advantage and should wake up CEOs and CFOs to that truth.
0: You, know, you have to wonder, though, whether they actually prepared for a situation like this where you can't just go to another part of the world for different sourcing because the entire world is affected. So I would assume that that was not really in the cards for a lot of these risk managers in, in recent years.
1: I agree with you. Is Obviously, this extent of production downtime has just blown everyone away. Uh, mm-hmm. But we have, interestingly enough, if you look at the pandemic, just pandemics alone, Between COVID now, I mean, it wasn't just a couple of years ago that we were with Ebola and MERS and the swine flu and the SARS and then Hong Kong flu. Those have been just in the last 20 years. Any one of those could have grown to become much bigger than they were. But fortunately, through technology, a little luck, a lot of advanced understanding by the doctors, we've been able to minimize that impact. But you're right. This is significantly bigger than anything any risk manager I've ever talked to has taken into account.
0: Yeah, now another aspect of cost-saving in supply chains in the last few decades has been that of offshoring, obviously looking for the cheapest possible labor, and very often that's China, which means you are greatly extending the length of your supply chains. Now, at the same time, companies were pursuing just-in-time. Doesn't that seem like something of a contradiction that you have longer supply lines and yet you're depending on those supply lines to react very quickly on a just-in-time basis? I would think that's sort of a schizophrenic way to run a supply chain.
1: Well, that is the fine line that we've been living. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are out there right now and saying we're going to extend this shipping channel to this extent, but they have to be able to change at a moment's notice to be able to meet our production schedules. That amount of data transfer has been phenomenal. The ability to be able to use that concept of lean and just in time and extend it has just made the process of doing supply chain management that much more difficult, which I believe The supply chain managers have done an amazing job of making it happen. But now, Mm -hmm. with this new reality, they realize, and, and the geopolitical nature of this, I mean, every political region now is running into significant risk levels, everything from the tariffs to the embargoes to instability in locations around the world where shipping is critical. These points of the Suez Canal and Panama Canal are very small areas that can be impacted heavily minor changes in political nature.
0: Potential choke points, yeah. Now, you have said, though, that a lot of companies have realized for a few years now that risk is real. But you're also saying that when it comes to shifting away from just-in-time and lean, that people are just talking about that now. So is that, in fact, the case that that aspect of the realization of risk hasn't really been acted on to any great degree yet?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of this has been paper-pushing. So many of the risk reviews have been, well, what if have we put terms and conditions in that pushes the blame to the supplier, that we've pushed the blame down the supply chain and you are now paper covered and you're going to provide me uh, appropriate review and compensation in the event that this fails. Now, so the paper is there. The legal opportunities after the fact to go after these people for money is all in place. But the actual changing to say, all right, we're going to now have two unique supply chains so that I can actually have greater flexibility in where I'm getting my product from, whether there's geopolitical activity or weather-related activity or pandemic activity. I can switch at least between one supply chain and another or have a 70-25 split in my activities. But you get these strategic sourcing consulting firms tied in with the CFOs that say, oh, there's an extra 5% cost, let's get that out of our supply chain and go down to one. So all of a sudden, all this work on risk has been limited because somebody's looking for that next nickel.
0: And, of course, they're under pressure from the executive suite on a quarter-by-quarter basis to keep costs down or to even lower costs. And they're under pressure from their big customers like the big big big-box retailers to get supplier costs down. So I guess there's there's always that pressure. But if this talk is happening now— What form might it take in terms of action? Would it mean like suddenly supply chains are going to start building up safety stocks? Are they going to be shortening supply lines by reshoring or nearshoring? What is your expectation as to how this will all play out?
1: Yeah, I think every manufacturing operation, every financial services company, everyone that has a supply chain, which is every company in the world, is going to look at their scenario. And hopefully, the individuals that are in charge that are making these decisions and understanding the risk and rewards of flexible, anti-fragile supply chain will realize that those costs have to be incorporated. You can't just add inventory because you never know which inventory is going to be shut down the fastest. Who would have thought face masks were going to be the big deal? But the idea is that you're going to have to have a multiple supply chain strategy. And there are going to be times that you're going to need near-term sourcing. So. That's one option. You're going to be able to have some level of inventory of critical materials, as you see it, that's available and accessible more appropriately on a moment's notice. You will also have scenarios where you're going to look at your product line and say, are there different materials? Are there different production manufacturing methods? Are there different locations for these raw materials that I can address as these types of crucial pandemic Mm -hmm or disasters come to fruition that I can make those movements happen. I don't think it's one solution. I don't think everyone's going to say, oh, here's the next viable option for this. And you can't move everything to 100% onshore because you've just created that risk that's equal to the risk of low-cost country sourcing. There's got to be a mix. Flexibility is key to a mix.
0: There was already talk before this happened, though, of getting some production out of China, just Because it was not so cheap anymore because labor costs were going up and companies were realizing total landed costs were having to incorporate the extra cost of the lengthier supply lines. So do you see some acceleration of a move away from China or is that just aspirational talk and the lure of China is just too much for so many companies to resist?
1: No, I think you're... In the numbers, so as you get into more of a digital supply chain, which I believe is the driver for all of this, as you move to digital, you can see immediate movements of those items, such as purchase orders and shipping manifests and invoice activity, and that they're being spread out to more and more countries. So I believe that the transition is already occurring. This will speed it up considerably. I believe mm-hmm. the also is the key is that supply chains need to understand their entire chain. They have to look past their first and second tier and realize that their point of pain, uh, their choke point, as you stated earlier, it might be three levels down where two supply chains have the exact same manufacturer or the exact same raw material. And if that one piece closes down, both supply chains are in trouble. So getting your supply chain into a digital mode, that means digital from beginning to end, is going to allow to give you the data necessary to make better decisions and find out where your choke points are.
0: So you're saying digital equals transparency.
1: Oh, absolutely. Digital is power. Mm-hmm. Every program that I've ever put in place and changed it to a, from a paper, and unfortunately— of all invoices say are still paper. That means people don't have visibility. They don't have transparency. So it's really important that companies move to digital and then get it down to the end tier level so you can actually have the data necessary to make better decisions. And those decisions are also going to speed up the success you have in terms of moving work. As you see the risks, You can now start to analyze that more effectively and then make the decisions that's going to be able to reduce your overall risk structure and cost structure.
0: I am just continually shocked when I hear people make a statement like you just made about how 70% of all of this is still on paper. These things called computers have been around for a while. The internet has been around for a while. Uh, Wire transfers have been around for a while. All kinds of electronic communications have been around for a long time, and yet... it's a weird disconnect that that hasn't translated into a digital world already. What has held it back up to this point?
1: I believe in many cases, the individuals that have to make that change have that change management. It's it's hard to create change, especially when you have built up internal teams that are built on trying to make paper more efficient and their jobs are tied to that. I mean, I've experienced in all of my roles as a chief government officer that the hardest thing to do is see people that are in a role, they're deeply in that role, and their success, their future, their jobs are tied to managing paper. Those individuals don't want to see paper go away because they immediately say, that's my job. Now, I personally believe that you've got to tell your upper management and be able to get them to understand that these people are going to be impacted, that they have the opportunity to be freed up, to be more valuable to the company, but they've got to move out in that structure. Usually, it's going to be those turning point when the market makes a huge dive or revenues start to flatten or, or decline where the leadership sits there and says, OK, we've got to make changes now. And then change becomes a imperative versus a nice to have. That's when all of a sudden you see these big uh, adjustments and then paper goes away, you become digital, you come faster. And people are like, why didn't we do this 10 years ago?
0: Well, I mean, considering what you just described is exactly what's happening now, so I guess we can expect the top executives to begin doing that pretty soon, (laughs) I would think, right? Yeah, I would think you would hope. Another aspect of procurement transformation that we hear a lot about these days is the application of certain technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning, taking over aspects of procurement that were once the province of human beings exclusively. Do you see an important role for AI and other related technologies in the world of procurement going forward?
1: Absolutely. We were just talking about all this stuff is still on paper and it's not digital. Well, AI doesn't work on paper. So the idea is AI has only become a tool when you become digital. And as you become digital, what happens is you get deeper into the tiers of suppliers is the amount of digital data that comes back to you is exponential. All of a sudden, you could handle 10 pieces of paper and then move to 20 pieces of paper. But when you get to 100,000 data elements and growing and changing on a minute-by-minute basis, you have to have AI in order to be able to manage the amount of flow and to be able to pull out the data points that allow you to make better decisions. And the fun part is those data, that makes you transparent. It makes you smarter. It makes you deal with more intelligence in your process. You get real time adjustments that you can then drive and the AI engine becomes core to that success. So we have to move to digital. From digital, we can bring in AI. AI is gonna allow us to be able to process that amount of data uh, faster, and therefore we're gonna be significantly more effective in what we're trying to do.
0: Given the fact that TradeShift does offer a supply chain payment platform, I would be remiss not to ask you if you feel that there are also some changing trends in payment terms and the way in which buyers and suppliers are doing business today on the financial side. Is that happening or do you anticipate that happening as a result of some of these things we're talking about today?
1: I'm on the procurement side, but I deal with the AP and cash side on every company I've ever been at. The CFOs see this pile of paper and they want to streamline and digitize it. That's where the e-invoicing comes from. And we're seeing that growth of activity, companies realizing they've got to take advantage of digitizing, not an email of a PDF invoice that's not digitizing. (laughs) You'd be amazed at how many individuals think, oh, that's fine. I get emails from my suppliers. I don't get paper anymore. Well, a PDF is no better. So the the goal here is to have digital data coming directly from the supplier's AR systems, and then be able to feed into your accounts payable. What I have found, as soon as that digital nature occurs, it's not that you have to pay faster, but your CFO and treasurer can pay faster or can make decisions supplier by supplier category by category as to what is the most optimal way to make that payment happen. What I've noticed is all of a sudden the CFO and treasurers start to realize, like, all right, if we can manage this more effectively, which suppliers we have better relationships, where are our contractual terms for? Then they get me more involved to say, hey, Roy, if we can get this digital at the front end, and we can then start driving better holistic cost management, not just unit price, but demand management, landed costs, risk mitigation strategies, which should all be costed as well, not to mention carbon neutral strategies, recycling strategies, green strategies overall. Those are all cost elements that can get to the front end of your supply chain solution, which will then drive more digital nature on your back end. And that end-to-end solution set is going to make those companies excel in the next generation.
0: Creative cost elements as opposed to simply stretching out payment terms because you want to hold on to your cash longer, which a lot of buyers are doing these days and, and actually hurting suppliers quite a bit in the process. But. Uh, you're saying that that might be a replacement for that kind of behavior?
1: Yeah, short-term thinking. If you can just think, no, no, we we understand that in the financial services world, of every revenue dollar, 15 to 20 cents of it is going out to suppliers. Where in the manufacturing world, that could be 40, 50, even 60% of every dollar. So those supplier dollars are an enormous activity. But your suppliers are your innovation engine. Those are the people that are going to give you the best next new ideas to be able to drive your market or your solutions going forward. So squeezing those suppliers to the point where they can't be innovative for you is not wise thinking in the long term. What you want to do is have that wonderful supplier relationship activity so you know how you can provide value to your suppliers working with third parties. I mean, the trade shift solution is not only e-invoicing, but with that e-invoicing, be able to drive cash payments so the suppliers can get paid rapidly and then be able to invest more in your solution. So you're helping them be successful. They're going to help Mm -hmm. you to be successful. We have to look at suppliers as our most valuable asset, not just as a group to be able to squeeze payment
0: structures. Or just beat up whenever you need something to beat up on. Um, We started this conversation by asking you if you saw a shift away from JIT just in time and lean. Just in time, maybe, but lean, if you define lean as the elimination of waste and waste as defined by redundant and unnecessary processes, and it seems like we're talking about lean is more important than ever.
1: Lean is more important. And if you drive digitization, you can find all the areas where you have excess for no value. Now, note having a little extra inventory here and there where it's appropriate is valuable excess. But there are many places through duplication, uh, and many of those are not only supplier-based duplication, but internal duplication, errors that have to be fixed and refixed, those types of things, quality control activity, those types of duplication where people are coming in to do it again because they didn't do it right the first time, that type of error is normally driven by human interventions. So the more you can digitize the program, the more you can bring the intelligent people to the areas where they're most valuable and take them away from the areas where they actually cause more errors than they're worth.
0: Well, as you say, Roy, no simple answers, but some good tips here on what companies are doing as a result of this pandemic and going forward, maybe some really positive moves toward improving the efficiency of supply chains generally and some new thinking going on. So Roy Anderson of TradeShift, Thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today.
1: I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, for
0: That was my conversation with Roy Anderson, of Trade Shift, talking about fragile supply chains in uncertain times. We're online at www.SupplyChainBrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my think tank blog, watch thousands of videos and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.